In seasons of suffering, in times of testing, trials, what is it that we need? What is it that we really need? What do we seek? Distraction? A shopping spree? Vacation? A good friend? A listening ear? Or or maybe some clarity, some insight into what's going on, what's happening, and why is this happening? Well, those things could be helpful for a time. But according to Psalm 119, one important answer to that question of what we need in times of suffering is that we need the Bible. We need the Bible. That's not an overly simplistic answer. That's not just a Christianese quip meant to soothe those who will believe it like it's a placebo. No, it's true. Christians need the Bible in good times and especially in rough times. As the psalmist of Psalm 119 will later on say in verse 92, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. So more accurately, we don't just need the Bible or or need to take it in, though that's true, but we need to delight in the Bible. Or in the language of our verses this week, verses 17 to 32, we need to see wonderful things in the Bible. In the midst of troubling times, when we're weary, we need to see wondrous things. So if you're going through something heavy right now, or maybe just coming out of it, you've come to the right place, and not particularly this church so much, but I mean, you've come to the Bible this morning. We have gathered around the Bible this morning, and in the Bible, there is conviction and clarity. In the Bible, there is strength and sustenance. In the Bible, we see God, we behold him, we're changed by him. We need the Bible, and specifically wonderful things from the Bible. So let's read Psalm 119, verses 17 to 32, our next couple of stanzas in studying this great long psalm together. Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I'm a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. I've chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. 
I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. This morning, I'd like us to consider who writes these lines, from what circumstances he writes them, what he asks of God in light of them, and what he does as a result. So four headings will help us think through this beautiful and personal poetry. The first is what we might call the servant sojourner. This is the one who writes. He's the servant sojourner. Verse 17, he refers to himself before God as your servant. Verse 19, he says, I am a sojourner on the earth. Let's take each of those words, servant and sojourner. He's God's servant. He says it twice. The first stanza, in fact, is bracketed with that word, servant. Verse 17 and again in 23. And this word means so much more than just that he has to obey his God because he's his servant. That's true, but there's much more to it. It's a term of honor in ancient Near East thought. It means belonging to his master. It means that he's in the Lord's household. He has privilege, not just responsibility. But his responsibility means that he's doing his Lord's bidding. Moses was God's servant in the Bible. The prophets were referred to as God's servants. And of course, it's a term that was applied to the coming Messiah all throughout the Old Testament. He's the capital S, servant. He's a servant. And he's also a sojourner, he says. A sojourner, a traveler, a stranger. As we said last week, we don't know exactly who wrote Psalm 119. Some think it could be King David, and that's possible. There are a couple of seasons of David's life where the circumstances of his life do sort of match the circumstances described in this long psalm. Like when Saul was the king and David was on the run outside of the land, and he was in enemy territory as a stranger. Or much later in his life, after he took the throne, his son tried to take it from him, and David had to flee Jerusalem for his very life. But perhaps more likely than King David, as I said last week, is that this is written by someone, someone unknown, during the time of the Babylonian captivity, when God's people were yanked out of their land and thrown into slavery in Babylon for 70 plus years. Regardless of who it is, this is a man who's a stranger. He's a foreigner in a foreign land or under foreign rule, and he's not at home. He doesn't feel at home. Christians should know that quite well. They should have that experience in their back pocket, and they should know that these terms apply to them quite well. We're pilgrims. We're strangers, like Abraham and Sarah, who were longing not just for a promised land with dirt, but they were longing for a promised land of heaven, according to Hebrews 11. Well, First Peter uses that same kind of language for us. We are strangers and exiles. We are sojourners. As the old spiritual goes, 
This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. As Jesus prayed for us in John 17, he said that we're, yes, in this world, no doubt about it. But we're not of this world. And we shouldn't feel like we are. That doesn't mean that this life is just one giant waiting room, that we're simply on hold until we get to our final home. No, this life has real meaning and purpose, but this life isn't it. It's not the end of the story. Just like the exile had a purpose, but it wasn't the end. There's more to come. And this is really a matter of identity. Identity. This is who we are. Well, how do we see ourselves? How do we view ourselves? How do we label ourselves? If I were to say to you, so who is, and then I said your name. As I heard Mark Dever do once to one young pastor, he said, so Jim Smith, who is Jim Smith? And I thought, I'm so glad he didn't ask me that question. That would be terrifying. And yet it would be telling. Are you a Republican or a Democrat? Are you a high school teacher or an engineer? What is it that identifies you? Well, the whole Christian life, and really the whole thing of growth in the Christian life and health in the Christian life, is largely resting on this thing of identity. The New Testament writers have a, a plethora of labels and metaphors to describe us. We're brothers and sisters. We're sons and daughters. We're children of the light. We're saints, the elect, chosen of God. We're adopted. We're servants, even bond servants, the lowliest of servants. And of course, we are sojourners, exiles, pilgrims. So thinking about and remembering any one of these categories or more of these categories, it could be real medicine for the weary and also for the wayward. We need to remember who we are. So if you're a Christian, like the Psalm 119 man, you're a servant of the Lord and you're a sojourner. Secondly, let's think about his suffering. Related to his sojourning is his suffering. It's sort of implied in his identity as a sojourner. But then he gets more explicit in verse 21 in following. He not only writes in a foreign land, which has its own difficulties, but he has enemies. Verse 21, he's among the insolent, accursed ones. In other words, the ungodly. Those who boldly curse God and are under his curse. And apparently, verse 22, they heap scorn and contempt on this man and presumably any of his kind. They mock, they deride, they accuse, they ridicule. And then verse 23 takes it up another notch. Princes sit plotting against me. There are people of power in the land that are out to get him for his very life. His life is in the balance. He could be killed soon, which no doubt relates to how he feels about all this. How does he feel? Verse 25, he says, My soul clings to the dust. 
In verse 28, he says, my soul melts away with sorrow. What vivid language. I mean, just try to picture it. I know that's symbolic, but try to imagine what the symbolism is describing here. Imagine if you could picture a soul, it being on the ground and clinging to the dust. Imagine if you could see a soul, it, it melting away like wax in front of the sun. That's how this man feels. So this is far from some ivory tower theologian who lives in quiet repose in the mountains and conveniently studies the Bible and conveniently prays. He's desperate. And so you can look to this man as an example. He's proven. He's gone through more than you have, most likely. He's a wanted man. He's shriveled up on the inside. And yet, are, yet his eyes are on God. Notice that he tells God what's going on. We can observe that just thus far already. He tells God about his circumstances and his feelings. And you might think, doesn't God know of his circumstances? Doesn't God know how he feels? Yes, but the psalmist wants to remind himself that God knows. And so he tells God what's going on and how he feels. He says in verse 26, when I told you of my ways, you answered me. He tells God, and then he also turns the scenarios, the circumstances toward the word, toward scripture. He relates everything to the Bible. He tells God what's going on, and then he'll ask for something about the Bible, which leads thirdly to his supplication. Supplication. That's just a fancy word for prayer requests, things he's asking God for. And so what does he ask of God? Well, before we answer that, we should pause to think of what we usually ask for in times of suffering. I usually ask that it would just go away, that it would stop, that it's been long enough, that the Lord would just remove it or change it, flip it. And there is a humble and holy way to pray such things, especially when we add Jesus' line, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Yes, ask God to remove it. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. But, but that's not even the model here in Psalm 119, though it's permissible. He doesn't pray for the trouble to stop. He prays for strength and holiness and integrity in the midst of his suffering, sojourning days. You see, in verse 25 and following, there's a string of requests. Verse 25, give me life according to your word. Verse 26, teach me. Verse 27, make me understand. In verse 28, he prays to be strengthened of course, by the word. Verse 29, he wants to be kept from false ways. And in verse 31, he asks that he not be put to shame, which I don't think is so much relating to the shaming that others are doing, that stopping, but instead him being protected from sin that would embarrass 
himself and even more his God. May he not be put to shame. This is what's on his mind in the midst of suffering. The Bible. Doing the Bible. Keeping the Bible. Following the Bible. Being strengthened by the Bible. Now, each one of those requests that I mentioned, verses 25 to 31, could deserve our, our careful exploration, deeper thought, that kind of thing. But we don't have the time to consider all of those. So let me just point our attention to one I haven't mentioned yet, the one I think that is most central for our verses this week. He asked God that he would see, S-E-E, if you'll pardon another S word. He prays to see. Verse 18, he says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. In verse 27, he says, Make me understand the way of your precepts. In theological terms, we call this illumination, where God lights something up or he removes the veil so that we can see. Now, God's word is clear. It's sometimes hard to understand, but the it's not the fault of the word itself. It's plain. It's not an enigma. It doesn't require a decoder ring. The problem is not that God's word is cloudy, but that we as sinners have spiritually cloudy sight. In fact, we're blind. Sin is blinding. In Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul says that the unbelieving world... They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Now, that's not speaking of the really bad people. That's just speaking of people. In fact, that was all of us. Christian, that was us at one time before, well, before 2 Corinthians 4 happened. Remember in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, Paul talks about how the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. But then he gets to the good news in verse 6. The God who said, light, shine out of darkness. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's called conversion. That's called becoming a Christian. If you're not a Christian, you really should pray for this to happen. It's really not just an intellectual exploration. It's not just a matter of reading the Bible, though that is useful and important, and I would encourage it. It's not just a matter of asking questions of other Christians, though that's a great thing to do if you're not a Christian. If you're not a Christian, you also need to pray that God would give you eyes to see. You don't see. Naturally, we don't look at Jesus as a crucified Savior and think, yes, that's the answer for the whole world. Yes, we're all sinners, and he died for sins by dying in our place. Yes, I believe it, I want it. It takes a miracle for us to say that we believe it and want it. 1 Corinthians 1 says that by nature we're going to think it's foolishness or it's a stumbling block. We'll trip over it. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God unto salvation. If you're not a Christian, pray that God would reveal to you salvation power in the cross of Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, 
Well, praise God that he's given you eyes to see. Remember that it's all of his grace and for his glory. And don't forget that though you now see, you don't yet fully see. You're not home yet, pilgrim. And so, yes, you've seen Christ. You've tasted and seen that he is good. You have been saved. You can say, spiritually speaking, I once was blind, but now I see. There's a sense in which there is a one and done aspect to this at conversion. But we also need to realize that we don't see everything that God has revealed in his word to the fullest and to the clearest. And so it's still a very fitting prayer for every Christian. Verse 18, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. This is how we're changed. This is how we grow. We have to see and where do we go to see? Well, a bit in creation. That'll help. You can see that God is glorious and powerful. We talked about that last week. But it's in the word that we get God's glory like no other place this side of heaven. 2 Corinthians 3 tells us that in Scripture we are beholding the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image, same image of Christ, from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This is what the Apostle Paul prayed for, for his churches. And I think probably more than anything else, if we could calculate it, he prayed for illumination. Like in Ephesians 1, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. And from there, he goes on for several more verses to give specifics of what he hopes will be enlightened. Two chapters later, he's back at it. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now, this thing of illumination doesn't bypass the legitimacy of literary rules and features. It's that God shines his light on his word. He, he doesn't necessarily speak apart from it. Not like we're talking this morning. He doesn't reveal something when we pray for our, our eyes to behold wondrous things. He doesn't give us a, a giant explosion or light display. He doesn't give us a voice from the sky or simply a feeling from within. No, he shines light on the Bible, in its grammar, in its literary features. And yet this isn't merely the, the stuff of a literature class. These are spiritual truths to be apprehended spiritually. That's why we need to pray to see. We see a good example of this kind of thing in Luke 24. It's a special example when those two men walking on the road to Emmaus think that Jesus is dead but not risen and the risen Jesus comes alongside them. They don't know it at first that it's him. But he begins to unfold from the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
how the Psalms and the prophets were all talking about him. He's showing them. He's teaching them. But then it says, he opened their minds to understand. It's both and. Or as Paul can tell Timothy, consider what I say and the Lord will give you understanding in all things. So we need the Lord to give us understanding. That's why we pray before Sunday mornings. Pray for our church services before you get here. Maybe just on the way in the car. Maybe be praying throughout the week as, as the preacher is preparing to, to bring a message from the word. Pray and come with a, a spirit of expectation and anticipation that God will speak and he will show and he will reveal wondrous things. We need to see wondrous things. Notice that word, wondrous, is, it's actually twice in our passage. One in verse 18, that I may behold wondrous things. And then again in verse 27, that I meditate. I will meditate on your wondrous works. That's what holds these two stanzas together. There's our key word for our passage, wondrous. Around 29 times in the Psalms, we find that word wondrous variously translated in our English Bibles as wondrous or wonders or wonderful works or awesome deeds is what I think the NAS, New American Standard, uses a lot. These are things that cause us to wonder, cause us to smile, cause us to stand in awe, cause us to, at times, tremble. The wondrous things of the Bible are the things that God has done in history, particularly when he shows off. He shows off. You might have a problem with that. I don't want to show off God. Well, that's the God of the Bible. That's the God that is. I mean, he just keeps saying over and over, I did this for my glory, for my fame, so that you would see my power. And because he is ultimate, ultimately powerful, ultimately glorious, him showing his power and his glory is a gracious and loving thing, not a showy and selfish thing. Wondrous works. Just follow the logic of that one verse, verse 18. There are wondrous things in God's word. They're there. If you haven't seen them in a while, it's not the Bible's fault. We can see wondrous things in God's word as Christians. Not just academics, seminary professors, or pastors. Christians can see wondrous things in God's word. And we need to see wondrous things in God's word. We need it. That's the whole point of this passage. In times of trouble, we need to not just turn to the word, but see wondrous things from the word. And we won't see them in our own strength. We need help. We need eyes to see. And so we pray. We ask God to reveal more and more every time we open it. Fourthly, consider his steadfastness. Consider this man's steadfastness. And by that I mean his resolve, or what we called last week, his determination. What does he commit to do? 
specifically with the word. I'll look at the last few verses. Verse 30, I've chosen the way. I set your rules before me. Verse 31, I cling to your testimonies. Verse 32, I will run in the way of your commandments. He doesn't just pray for God to reveal wonderful things and then wait to be zapped. We talked about that last week. He does something. And I think of particular note, noteworthiness, is that he meditates on the Bible. That's a unique emphasis here. Again, two times, one in each stanza. Verse 23, your servant will meditate in your statutes. And then verse 27, I will meditate on your wondrous works. So what is it to meditate according to the Bible? And I stress according to the Bible because there is a kind of meditation out there that you might be familiar with. In Eastern religions, meditation for them means mindlessness. It means clearing the slate, removing the cobwebs, and trying to find peace or chi or karma or something. With transcendental meditation, of which people like Jerry Seinfeld or a longtime practitioner, a mantra is repeated over and over. Not a word. No, that would get you thinking. You don't want to think. No, it's just a sound. Something like that. Just keep doing that until you transcend everything else. Well, in Jewish and Christian thought, meditation is just about the exact opposite of that. It's not mindlessness. It's mindfulness. It's not mind idleness. It's mind busyness. It's not wordless. It is word filled. It is pondering, considering, musing upon God's word and specific words in it. That means then that God's people are not just to read the Bible, though that's true. They're not just to listen to the Bible on audio, though that is very convenient in a good way, especially in our busy age, to get more Bible in. They're not just to hear it taught, though that's important. They're to chew on it. I was thinking this week, it's probably a bad analogy, but I was thinking the difference between how an alligator eats something and how a cow eats something. An alligator, it's down. You can imagine asking an alligator, so how was it? He wouldn't say, well, it was a little salty. Well, that boot was a little tough. He wouldn't say something like that. I mean, it's just down, that's it. As opposed to a cow. He chews the grass, and he chews the grass. And he chews the grass. And then he pushes it down to the first stomach. A little bit later, up it comes. He chews the grass some more. Not to be too graphic for church, but I think you know how cows' stomachs work. Well, that's something how Christians should handle their Bible. They're never done with it. Christians should never say, Oh, I've read that story before. I actually heard a sermon on it. i got to read it today. You know, get through my reading. Uh, but I know that story. No. Christian, this is God's word. It speaks. It's what we need. Ask him to reveal. Steadfastly meditate. Think over what it says and the Lord will give you understanding. 
Now let me get even more practical than that because you might hear meditation is like chewing and you think, okay, but what do you mean chewing? I don't actually literally bite the Bible. So what is chewing like? Well, here's some options. Ask questions of a verse or a passage. Be curious. Ask questions. Why this word? Why here? what's, What's his point? What's he getting at? Try to observe verbal connections. You know, if you're in a Pauline letter, you're going to have all kinds of prepositions, big run-on sentences, modifiers. Try to follow the argument. If you still know how to diagram a sentence, or even if you're a little bit rusty, go for it. See if you can get what Paul's doing. It's God's word. It's not just a long-winded preacher from the first century. Hold up a word at a time sometimes. We've kind of done that a little bit this morning with that word, wondrous. Wondrous things. Oh, hold it up like a a diamond in the light. Hold it, turn it, gaze upon it, smile about it. Perhaps search a word for how it's used elsewhere in the Bible No Christian who has the internet has an excuse not to do this. It's all over the internet. There are these sites where you search a word in the Bible and it lists all the places in your English Bible where it comes up. It's very handy. Maybe pray through a passage, pausing and elaborating after each line. This is a great way to use the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven... Elaborate on that for a paragraph or two. Hallowed be your name. Elaborate on that for a paragraph or two and keep going. You could also think of whole Bible themes, not just a passage, but a a theme. Let me show you this from Psalm 77. Turn there, turn back to Psalm 77 if you have a Bible with you. Here I want to show you an example of meditation. Uh, In a sense, we'll meditate on one man's meditation. He doesn't start merely with the discipline of meditation. He starts with trouble and grief. I won't read the verses for you. I'd just like you to look down in your Bibles and see for yourself a, a bit of a flow or an argument or a development Verses 1 to 3 or 1 to 4 or so, here's the heartache, here's the trouble. He's grieved, he's weary, his soul refuses to be comforted. He's even trying to remember God, but he moans. He's trying to meditate, but his spirit faints. So verse 5, he says, I consider the days of old, the years long ago. He's going to remember God's ways long ago. And then he's going to begin with a diligent search of those things. The end of verse 6, then my spirit made a diligent search. Verses 7 to 9, he's asking questions of God. Has the Lord forgotten? Has his promises, have his promises fallen to the ground? Has he forgotten? Has he, has he given up on us? And then verse 10, then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. God's right hand, his, his armor-bearing hand. 
And if you looked in the Bible, if you searched in the Bible, you might find that right hand is used of God most particularly about the time he rescued his people out of Egypt. His right hand. He got to thinking about the right hand of God. And then verse 11, I'll remember the deeds. I'll remember the wonders of old. I'll ponder your work. I will meditate on your mighty deeds. And guess what verse 14 and 15 are about? The exodus, the time when God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. And guess what verses 16 through 19 are about? The parting of the Red Sea. In poetic language, he describes God's rescue, his defeat of the enemy, his, his, his plan and his power to bring his people to safety through dry ground with the Red Sea on each side. You see, though he suffers, though he grieves, though he's heavy, the Red Sea is enough for him. He's confident that God will be the same God today and will be faithful to his promises tomorrow because God parted the Red Sea. This is the kind of God we're talking about. He's not the kind of God that drops his promises or forgets his people. He's the kind of God that crushes the enemy and brings his people safely to their land. That's just one example of how we can meditate on the psalm and how we can observe a guy meditating on a single event. The parting of the Red Sea. Well, isn't it wonderful, God's word? There are wondrous things in God's word. There are some things that are clear and apparent at first glance. There are other things that need a little bit more picking, prodding, considering. You could think of Bible intake like cleaning carpet in your house. There are different degrees, different kinds of cleaning of carpet. You can imagine in a bedroom, a little kid, he picks up his toys and picks up a half-eaten apple off the ground in his room, and he says, Mommy, I cleaned my room. I cleaned the carpet. And he kind of did. But then imagine that his teenage sister comes in with one of those push Roller vacuums, you know, the non-powered kind like they have at the movie theater. That does a little bit more. She gets some lint. She gets some stuff off the carpet. But then imagine that dad comes in with a new auric. You know, a real powerful one. You know, one that has the hypoallergenic remover thing. And dad gets it pretty darn clean. But mom calls Stanley Steamer. And Stanley Steamer comes with that giant vacuum in a van. And they get water and steam on it. And they suck up all the wetness and dirt. Well, in the same way, there are levels of Bible intake. There is a time to be reading, say, three to five chapters a day. Simply to observe the landscape. To, to see the big points. Or, or perhaps, if you've never read that story, to introduce yourself to it. But there is a time to slow down, to see what you can see, to, 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 to be snoopy, 
to, to pick through the fibers a little bit. Every Christian should be thinking, I know there's more here. And when you don't see it, well, remember, we pray. We ask God to show us wondrous things from his word. But we don't just wait. We meditate. This is God's help for us in weary times. His word. Chewing on his word. This is where we turn. Not just in weary times, but also in good times. It's what we need more than anything else. We need to see in the midst of good times and hard times the God who is over it all. His faithfulness, his kindness, his power, his glory, his steadiness, his unchangingness. We need to know and see afresh. He's bigger than it all. He's not threatened by the worst of his enemies. And he isn't done. If you're not a Christian, i, I got to ask at this point, I, I just wonder, where do you go in suffering times when you need encouragement, strengthening, when you need insight and clarity, when you need things to, to anchor down or, or hang some things on? Where do you go? The news? Good grief. These are scary days. These are strange days. It looks like it is all teetering. No surprise, the Bible says, don't put your trust in princes. Don't put your trust in leaders. No. The Bible is where we turn as Christians. I'd encourage you, if you're not a Christian, keep turning to it. Pray for God to reveal it. And I pray that someday you will see wondrous things from his word. And Christian, be encouraged by the beautiful outcome that this psalm, this section anyway, anticipates. How does, how does our passage end? Verse 32, I will run in the way of commandments when you enlarge my heart. To enlarge the heart means to enlarge his capacity. It means he has seen and he wants to see more and the Lord just keeps showing more his heart is enlarged, and hence he will run in the way of your commandments. Back in verse 25, he was laid low, clinging to the dust. And at the end, he anticipates running in God's commandments. Can you just picture chariots of fire? You know, what's his name? The Scottish guy, Eric Little running on the beach with a smile on his face. That's what this guy anticipates, running in God's commandments like that with an enlarged heart. Well, let's pray for God's help. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity, for its thoroughness. We repent of our neglect of it, we want more of it. We want to see you in it. Make us humble in all the right ways when we come to your word. May we also be expectant, Lord, as we ask for your help. May we be anticipating, even in this next week, 
that you might show us some things. Some things we need to change. Some things, Lord, that we had forgotten about you. Some things, perhaps, that we've started to subtly doubt. Lord, we pray you'd reveal more of yourself to us and we would delight in you, in and through your word until Jesus returns and we don't need a Bible anymore because we will have the living word before our very eyes and will be changed forever. We long for that day. Until then, Lord, may we look to your word. Amen.